Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This show is brought to you by the Loyalty and Awards Conference, the leading annual event for loyalty professionals in the travel industry. Make sure to join us this year from the 9th to the 11th of October in Rio de Janeiro for the perfect mix of inspiring content and exciting awards. Check out loyaltyandawards.com for more information and to register. Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. My guest today is Jen McMillan, a nationally recognized and award-winning relationship marketing expert in the United States, whose agency, Incendio, has created or managed loyalty programs for brands like NASCAR, PetSmart, GNC, and Chipotle. Now, many of you know that I love learning about emerging trends in marketing as they offer exciting possibilities for us to drive innovation in our loyalty programs. In today's conversation, Jen shares some powerful ideas around the emergence of some new demographic trends, the business of live shopping, and also the power of book talk. And she explains why these trends are important both in the United States market, as well as for all of you listening around the world. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jen McMillan from Incendio. So, Jen, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you for having me. It's going to be an exciting conversation, Jen. When I looked at our LinkedIn's, I discovered we have 238 people in common, would you believe? Only 238? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> totally crazy. Yeah, it's a small world in loyalty. I almost can't believe we haven't met before, but I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation um, based on your incredible career and all of the work you've done for some of the biggest brands in the United States, which you're going to tell us a bit about. Yeah. But before we get into talking about um, all of these exciting case studies, I guess, and future trends, as you know, I always love to to ask my guests about their own personal favorite loyalty program so that I can get a sense of what you admire both personally and professionally. So tell me, Jen, what is your favorite loyalty program? All right. So I want to start out by saying that I'm executive platinum on American Airlines. So, oh my God. Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> so as I call it, I'm queen of the dung heap. So uh, yeah, they're not my favorite loyalty program, despite the fact that I am top tier in their program. Wow. Um, so, oh yeah, I know. So my favorite loyalty program is actually hotels.com, which I think would probably surprise people. Uh, but I used to be, I was in Marriott's program for a long time and I hit top tier, right? And then I was in Hilton's program and I hit top tier. And what happened one day was I actually, I woke up in a hotel room and I couldn't remember where I was. Oh no. And because, right? And when you travel yeah. so much, yeah. but the, the root of the problem was that everything looks the same. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, and then I just, I was like, you know what? I have a craving for variety. Yeah. And uh, so I actually switched over to hotels.com. Yeah. Which of course has Marriott properties, Hilton properties, everything. But um, I, I think for me now, because I've traveled so much, I mean, you know, when you're in your twenties and you think travel is so glamorous. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and staying in the hotel room is a treat. No. Yeah. I'm way past that point in my life. So um, for me now, it's about finding like a little bit more like the hidden gems. And, and because, you know, the way that hotels, uh, hotels.com's program is structured, mm. it's after 10 visits, they average your visits and then they give you one night of credit based on the average of those 10. Oh, nice. And so, yeah. yeah. And so for me, um, you know, it's been wonderful because uh, like the last time I went to Amsterdam on vacation, mm-hmm. um, I picked just weird, fun, crazy hotels. And uh, my entire hotel side of the vacation was actually covered by all of my hotels.com nights. Wow. So, um, yeah. So for me, again, I'm, I'm using, I'm doing what a lot of business travelers do. I take my business travel, right? Yeah. Suck it up and then use all the perks, you know, in the travel programs to actually go 
indication. <laughs> wow. But I have yeah. the same experience, Jen, in terms of, first of all, business travel sounds fabulous. Um, I was in Paris, <laughs> Lisbon and Madrid. I can't even remember now in October, November and December last year. And honestly, like I, I you know, was exhausted. I got sick. I was just like, it wasn't mm-hmm. fun uh, because I was there to work hard and loved the work. But uh, I totally agree. Um, business travelers deserve exceptional rewards. So it's super interesting to see what Hotels.com is doing in terms of the simplicity. It sounds like that's Mm -hmm. actually the most compelling part for you because, of course, you could find boutique hotels anywhere if you just went and did a Google search for any city. But it's the fact it's that simplicity and you know what to expect in terms of your rewards. Mm-hmm. They also help you with discovery, which I really like. And so, you know, they'll send out uh, one or two emails a week and it's like, you know, the 12 best boutique hotels in New York City, something oh, wow. like that. And, Beautiful. You know, yeah. and again, it is, then that's what makes it fun, you know, mm. for when you travel so much is it's the novelty of it. And uh, like, uh, so I'm actually getting uh, married this year. Congratulations. And, uh, Thank you. And um, we're getting married out of town. And so Mm. every time we go, we stay at a different hotel. And and that's what's actually been kind of fun because we wanted to stay at a big variety so that we could recommend to our guests um, who are all basically, everybody's at a different budget level, right? So we've stayed at three stars, four stars, and fives. Mm. And that's what actually has been kind of fun, um, you know, because, you know, you kind of get in a certain groove. And, And so being able to like, and again, we'd stay for a week. And so we'd switch hotels and stay at three different properties during that whole week, you know, wow. while we were down doing the planning. But um, but that's what makes it fun, right? And yeah. I mean, variety is the spice of life. And, uh, you know, and we're in a better position to help, you know, make recommendations on something that might be, you know, totally. a better fit for yeah. certain travelers. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. I would yeah. totally be coming to you for recommendations. So that's awesome. <laughs> Ask me. Ask me anything. <laughs> but also what I like about what you said, Jen, is um, the power of content for the discoverability side. And yeah. what I'm starting to hear coming through, and I'm kind of, you know, teasing it out, I guess, as much as possible. But there are so many levers that are available to loyalty professionals. And mm-hmm. we all know about, know about our points, our prizes, our subscription, and they're all amazing. But the differentiator is sometimes the thoughtfulness that a brand might put in and go, have you thought about going to this destination or this incredible hotel? So is that something that you're seeing coming through in your agency and the client work that you're doing? You know, what I'm seeing is that there are companies that are using data very well Mm -hmm. and there are companies that aren't. And for the ones that are using data well, that's where that differentiated experience is coming through. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, some of the best ones out there um, mm. are like the beauty brands. And, you yeah. know, like sure. for instance, I mean, they can ask you three questions and can completely basically triangulate you mm. as a customer you know, without doing any other work. And, you know, and what they're doing, right, is they're using that data, you know, to to, to personalize your experience right out of the gate. Yeah. And um, so I think that's incredibly interesting. And um, so they're doing it well, but there's mm. other companies, uh, you know, because, you know, we're loyalty program professionals on my team. And sure. so we sign up for every program that's out there. Yeah. And there's one program in particular where we, on purpose, two of us, We sat side by side and we filled out our profiles and we did them completely opposite of each other just to see what kind of marketing we would get and um, no differentiation. I mean, it just was like, okay, so, you know, the the promise to consumers, right, is if you give us your data, right, the quid pro quo is that we will use that data to make your experience more personalized and more relevant. And if some brands it's happening, some brands it's not. Totally, totally. So tell us about your background, Jen. How did you fall in love with this industry that so many of us <laughs> really do love and feel so passionately about? Um, because I think it gives us a unique opportunity to be loyal to our customers. And of yeah. course, then there's the commercial benefit, hopefully, uh, not always, but uh, certainly if we bring professionals in, there will be. But how did you get started in this industry? 
I'm a, I will tell you my story, but it's going to totally date me. Oh, which is fine. But um, so I, I grew up actually as a very classically trained database marketer. And uh, we had a program that we were actually running for. Okay. So again, this is way back, right? So people who are like under like 35 are not even going to like know what this is, right? But um, we were running a program for the baby bells. And so this is back when each, uh, you know, like phone system, you know, was combined to its own state. You know, uh, this was right when cell phones were just hitting the scene mm-hmm. and uh, number portability did not exist at the time. I mean, all, all these things, right? And so, um, I was running the the um, the direct mail side of these programs, and then kind of what fell into my lap was the administration of the loyalty program aspect, where we gave points and um, for usage, right? So if you were on a better plan, you got more points. You know, of course, encouraging you to you know keep going up the food chain. Um, but back when, okay, again, this is where it's like it's like stone tablet time here. But it's back when you would sign up for a plan of minutes. You know, yeah, you would yeah. pay that amount for minutes, and then if you went over. You actually got charged for it, which, you know, at some point there was that switch where it was like, wait a minute, hold on. We're actually penalizing people for using our product. So maybe we need to rethink this. Right. So uh, but yeah, but so that was my first foray. And that was for, um, you know, all the, you know, like the AT&Ts, like all the regional AT&Ts. Mm. And then, um, you know, as things progressed, then it turned into um it you know turned into a, more of a national loyalty program, et cetera. But at the time, um, I was contacted by an agency called Briarly and Partners, which uh, I think a lot of people know, certainly in the states. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they asked me if I would come to Dallas and interview with them, but they wouldn't mm-hmm. tell me what client it was. Oh. And so I had to sign this NDA. And mm-hmm. um, but at the time, okay, remember this is like the mid nineties, right? There were not a lot of people who even had loyalty program experience. Sure. And so um, what it turned out, it was for Blockbuster. And so if you remember Blockbuster Awards, um, that launched way back, that launched, actually, I could tell you the exact date, but it launched in 1998. And um, it was one of the first programs that was out there that wasn't a travel program, right? Because you remember, like, you know, all the airlines, all the hotels had them, but the retailers, relatively new foray. And Mm. uh, so, yeah, so that was, so I was um, on the team that built Blockbuster Awards. And yeah, yeah, I was 27 years old when that happened. Yeah. And um, I am now not 27. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And most people won't even know the Blockbuster brand I do. So I think we're of a similar vintage, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I was yeah. like, it's one of those dead brands on my resume, but there's yeah. one left. There's there one is. left. I saw yeah. that on your profile. That's incredible. Yeah. And then GameStop, I know, was a huge one for you as well. So tell us mm-hmm. about the work you did with them building that very sure. incredible program. Yes, I would say GameStop was the is the best job that I ever had on the corporate side. And it was just, it was such a good match for my personality and just such a good match for what the business wanted. And, um, you know, GameStop at the time, even when I joined GameStop, and that was in 2009, there was a lot of talk that GameStop was going to be the next blockbuster, right? Ironically, that it was going to, you know, go, go the way of the dinosaurs. And um, so what I had been, what I was brought in to do, my challenge, right, was uh, we're giving you a year to build a best in class loyalty program. Wow. And um, I will tell you, I interviewed, um, um, I, the CEO at the time did not want someone like me on t- on staff oh, because no. because he wanted some. He just he felt we just put more money against stores yeah. and we'll just keep we'll just keep building stores and that will offset this. Yeah. And eventually, the uh, the rest of the senior team was like, "No, I, I promise you, this will be a good thing." And so I interviewed with with the then CEO six times, and uh, finally, I just I finally said to you know the. The, the yeah. person who would become my boss, I was like, listen, we just either need to fish or cut bait because I just, I can't keep doing this. I mean, we've been doing, we've been interviewing for four months now, right? Yeah. Um, it worked out to be the best job I've ever had. And so um, what I did was I built a program that was based on our most profitable activity. And mm-hmm. at GameStop, um, that was um, selling pre-owned games. And so um, what- Interesting. What yeah. we built- yeah, so we built, uh, it's called Power Up Rewards. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's over 40 million people in the program last time wow. I looked. Yeah. And, um, and it went global, which was yeah. great. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I left, I left after five years and okay. um, it was it was valued. I mean, again, our, our books were public, so this is not, okay. um, yeah. not a surprise. Yeah. But yeah, the auditors valued Power Up Rewards as a $250 million asset to the business. Wow. 
And uh, so that was my Super. job for five years. Yeah. And I loved it because it really did. Um, it changed the way that we did business because mm. when we started collecting data, right. And again, for anybody who runs a loyalty program, you know, the data is the stuff that makes you, inc- it makes you smarter, better, faster, right. It's sure. data. Sure. And I mean, we were able to use it. Um, I remember talking to the real estate team and I said, if you think Google maps changed your life, wait until I show you what we can do with power up data. So yeah. for instance, I could take a pin and I could drop it across the United States and show you where literally every single member in the program was. And so, you know, I could come to the real estate team and say things like, you know, I know you don't think you can put a store in Tyler, Texas, but you can. And then based on the number of customers there, what we think you'll do in sales, we, we could actually make a square foot recommendation, you know, wow. like don't get yeah. bigger than 700 square feet. Mm. And we could tell you based on the customer, how to assort the store. So, I mean, you know, cause if you had like, for instance, you're located next to a college, probably a lot more Xbox, a lot more PlayStation, right? Yeah. If you're yeah. going to be in a mall and you're right next to, you know, Toys R Us, Gymboree, you know, at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. more Nintendo, more plush, you know, that kind of stuff. And so not only were we able to use the loyalty program data to assort the store more smartly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to do that for our real estate decisions. And then mm-hmm. we are also able to use that data as well to um, when we started to acquire companies, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we owned a bunch of wireless companies, that type of stuff. Again, this was using our customer data to show like where, like, for instance, like the most tech engaged customers were. Mm. And so, um, extraordinary, just an extraordinary opportunity for me as a professional to build something from scratch. Cause you hardly ever get to do that. You know, a lot of us come in and you fix broken things, yeah. but, um, it really, it really was a truly, this is a terrible pun. It was a game changer for GameStop, <laughs> um, you know, and it was, it was the darling of our earnings calls. And so to be oh, in that cool. position was great. Yeah. And the day that, um, my CEO changed my nameplate, um, <clears throat> from, uh, you know, VP of loyalty, to uh, data queen. And that was, you know, I was like, that's a good thing. Amazing. Wow. So how long, how long did it take him to, to change his mind, Jen? Because if it took six interviews, he was obviously very resistant and thankfully the, the, the leadership team won him over. How long did it take, would you say? I mean, just anecdotally, of course, but you know, that's a huge achievement to, to first of all, I suppose, leverage loyalty data in a commercially valuable way, like beyond the, the cost center that we're often perceived as, um, you know, in terms of giving rewards and all of that kind of stuff. But how long would it, would you say it took him to really kind of go, okay, wow, this is working. Yeah. Um, well, I had a CEO change, uh, during my tenure. Okay. And the CEO who interviewed me became our chairman of the board. Okay. Um, still uh, kept his office, was in the was there every single day, and um, he was a founder of the company, so uh, just incredibly invested. Yeah. And uh, so the CEO who took over uh, was a gentleman named Paul Rains, mm-hmm. and um, and he he was my champion, and uh, he, I mean cool. truly truly wonderful in terms of the executive support that I received. And for him, um, he had been at Home Depot and had been a member of the C-suite there. And so he understood, right, what customer data can do. And uh, so, yeah, so along with him and, uh, and my boss, uh, who was the CMO at the time, Mm -hmm. it just, it was, it was an incredibly supportive environment and they were very open to trying new things. And, uh, it, so just in terms of like my professional success there, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I ever went back to the corporate side, I honestly don't know if I could replicate it because just all the factors were perfect. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that experience of being, as you said, the the darling of the investor calls. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty special. Nobody that's has rare. said that on yeah. this show before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you, the investment community was very fond of power up rewards because they could see what was happening. Okay. Um, I will tell yeah. you on the flip side, my finance team um, treated me like the antichrist because uh, even though I was generating, right? Yeah. I mean, hundreds of millions in just fee revenue, right? From the paid program. Yeah. Of course it's a points program. So you're accumulating liability on the books. Yeah. And, um, there was one person in particular who would, who always wanted to let me know that I was responsible, just me, right. For $65 million of liability on the books. And then I, I would go, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just a dumb marketer. So I would guess though, that with the 10 million people who are paying $15 a year, Uh that feels like more than 65 million, (laughs) but I'm just in marketing. So, you know, don't look at me, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, that's their job. 
But it that is, is their totally job. their job. And, yeah. um, you yeah. know, it's an ongoing challenge. We're not going to fix it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward then, Jen, to, uh, to today. Tell us about the kind of work you do and some of the brands that you work with. Sure. So uh, started Incendio almost eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I started Incendio after leaving um, Michael's Arts and Crafts. And so Michael's was my job after I left GameStop, um, both companies in Dallas. And after five years, I felt like I needed, I felt like I could had done what I could do right at okay. GameStop and it was time to move on. Sure. And so I um, started Incendio and uh, it, I probably, actually, I probably would have never done it had I not left Michael's. Um, and the reason why, why I had actually ended up leaving Michael's was that um, I had been recruited uh, by this the CEO. And um, I started without a boss. And when I did get a boss, uh, he told me in no uncertain terms that he was not a fan of loyalty programs. Ooh. And I was like, hey, do you know why I'm here? <laughs> like, hey, do you know why I was recruited to come here? Uh-huh. But uh, all things for a reason. And so um, I started Incendio um, mm-hmm. because it's just, it is, it really is. It is so much fun to immerse with a client and, and help them, you know, figure out their issues and solve their problems. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I like to tell people is that um, you are probably experiencing our work um, and you and you may not know it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've had a hand in developing PetSmart treats, mm-hmm. um, Chipotle rewards. Uh, our first client was GNC. Um, okay. So that's a like vitamin supplements retailer. Uh, yeah. here in the States. Yeah. And um, so my, my GNC rewards, that was our first client. That was the, f- the first thing that we did at Incendio. So I'm very proud of that. Amazing. But um, I mean, if you're in Dave and Buster's program, uh, yeah. you're experiencing our work. Um, we just launched a couple of weeks ago, um, NASCAR fan rewards. And Congratulations. so um, yeah. thank you for I that. I heard about that and, one. Um, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, so it is, I mean, and again, I just, it's, it's always a pleasure, you yeah. know, to be working with brands that people, uh, have, have heard of, you know, yeah. like Abbott and Purina and TGI Fridays, Ruby Tuesdays, um, Sally Beauty, uh, JC Penny. I mean, so it's, you Incredible. know, again, this, yeah. yeah, we got a lot, we got a lot out there. And, <laughs> a lot uh, going on. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot going on. <laughs> And that's why I wanted to talk to you, Jen, I guess, um, you know, uh, you know, for this show and this audience, which, as you know, is global. So, yes, it's predominantly or let's say our, um, you know, 23 percent of the audience actually is the number are in the United States. But we have a lot of listeners in the UK and Australia. And what I really love uh, for anyone who has, I suppose, that role as, you know, advisor, consulting and strategy is you truly get a perspective in terms of, you know, first of all, what is working for clients? Uh, what are they asking for? Um, what are they concerned about? I guess is something which is also super interesting. And there's a lot of stuff, like I know you write for Forbes, for example, and, you know, retail is obviously such a strong part of your kind of background and history. But just some of the topics that popped up on your work that I found fascinating were things like uh, live shopping, I think we. I would really love to explore that with you. Um, some of your insights around uh, zillennials. I know it's a term which I'm guessing you made up, but somebody made up, which is. I did not make it up. Yes, I. I cannot claim credit for that. Yeah. Okay, no worries. It's it's a good yeah. one. But um, yeah, so I think there's there's demographic insights around loyalty as well, Jen. That I would I would love to explore with you. So. Let's start maybe with that part, if you don't mind, because there does seem to be, you know, a lot of, I suppose, industry frustration that particularly millennials or Gen Z would often be um, considered um, almost immune or intolerant or, you know, just less engaged, I would say, with loyalty programs. Um, And that's feedback we get a lot. And it doesn't always surprise me, to be honest, because, you know, when I was the same age profile as that demographic is, I wasn't flying frequently. I wasn't doing the hotel stays and there wasn't enough loyalty programs in other sectors to really capture my imagination. So what are you hearing coming through? And tell us about this terminology, actually, this uh, this particular cohort that you wrote about in your article, because yes. I found it quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. So the term is zillennial. Okay. And uh, to put an age range on that one, it's going to be someone who is 23 to 33 years old. Okay. And the the interesting thing about zillennials is that 48% of them are living at home with their parents. Mm. And so again, think about where you were, right? Between the age of 23 and 33. Yeah. Um, you know, the first time I got married, I was 27. 
right? And so 23, I was, yeah. you know, relatively fresh out of college. By 33, I mean, and we had bought our first home, right? So yeah. that's a pretty big swath. But um, what's happening is that for all these people who are living at home, right? And a lot of them returned during pandemic. Mm. And um, and some of them are they're still, they're still staying at home because, uh, right, inflation is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, like, I don't know what it costs, uh, you know, to rent an apartment, uh, you know, around the world. But certainly we're seeing a huge spike in what it costs, uh, you know, to rent, you know, here in the States, like real estate's kind of crazy right now. Sure. And um, so what has happened, right, is you've got these people who are uh, generally college graduates and they have a lot of buying power. And um, and because they're not paying a mortgage or rent, yeah. uh, one of the things that's really interesting about what they're doing is um, they are actually, uh, okay, weirdly, they're driving the luxury market as mm-hmm. well as they're driving the secondhand market. Mm-hmm. And so with luxury, what we're seeing, right, just again, just from a straight up demographics perspective, is that these are the folks who are, uh, you know, coming into luxury goods about three to five years ahead of where previous generations were. And, uh, you know, so this is where, you know, like you see a lot of people, you know, again, you know, the luxury goods. I mean, you're seeing people with Gucci and, yeah. you know, and raised scarves and Louis Vuitton bags. And, you know, that's what yeah. 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 It's quite incredible because certainly when I was 21 to, to 31, 33, that age profile you're talking about, Jen, there was no question that anyone that, that I even would have met <laughs> would be buying a Louis Vuitton or a Gucci yeah. or anything. But <laughs> but I do see it in that age profile. So yeah. so I was fascinated to 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 see your article and to hear that insight that, you know, that the fact that there are a lot more, you know, back living at home. And again, I guess pre-debt, you know, before we have mortgages, it probably is a good time to to actually buy the fancy handbag that you might have hopefully for a long time. But then what I also love that you pointed out is they also love to actually buy secondhand. So it mightn't be that they're going into Dubai Mall in our example, but they might yeah. actually want to buy it on Etsy um, or eBay yeah. or whatever the, the secondhand marketplace yes. is. So so it's almost in some ways a conflict, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's it's a very important insight, I think, for loyalty marketers to be thinking about. Oh my gosh. This is a generation that, you know, has grown up with a very different mentality, you know, than, you know, I think kind of our generation. And, um, you know, as I was talking to a friend of mine about this, it was, you know, I grew up, I I was in high school in the eighties and we all wanted to look the same, you know, I mean, everybody, that was our, that was a very conformist mentality. And we all looked very similar. We shopped Mm. at the same places, you know, and to kind of be outside the norm was, was, yeah, asking right to to perhaps be singled out in a maybe a good way, not a good way, right? Yeah, sure. And this generation, right? I mean, very much individuals. And so, one of the things that has really taken off, especially during pandemic, right, is the rise of secondhand shopping. Yeah. And you know, there's so many services. Uh, you know, certainly, like I'm really familiar with them in the states, but like services like Poshmark, Thread mm-hmm. Up, The Real Real, and mm-hmm. even as I throw those three out, each of those is hitting a different demographic, right? I mean, thread up is like kind of like your basic goods. Poshmark maybe in the middle with a little bit of luxury thrown in. Real, real is it's designer stuff, and yeah. um, you know, it's I think they just grew up a really different mentality and uh, about you know consumption as a whole. Mm. And one of the really interesting things that I had seen you know during the holiday season was a statistic about pre-pandemic um, and post about. Um, what would you be, what would be your acceptance level of giving a gift that is known to be a secondhand gift? Oh, yeah. And it went from being 32% acceptable to 57% acceptable. And so again, when you think about, you know, all of these changes and how this generation coming up is very interested in sustainability, they're yeah. very interested in corporate values, making sure that they match their own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're not as materialistic. Um, they are definitely more focused on experiences, but mm-hmm. they're part of their DNA as, as, a generation is mm. this whole reuse, recycle, upcycle type thing. And that's why secondhand has has really just taken off like crazy. Totally. And mm-hmm. and what uh, what is their uh, attitude towards loyalty programs, would you say, Jen? Again, you know, given that, you know, we talked about that their buying power is very strong in some areas, maybe not as strong in other areas. So do you see them wanting to engage with our industry? You know, can we 
can we design programs that can effectively, I suppose, um, really be personalized in an effective way? And I'm thinking specifically about maybe, I think you've you've got a few beauty retailers, perhaps as clients. Um, and it strikes me that there are certain sectors like that where beauty is a huge part of what they expect from a retail brand. Is that fair to say? Um- That is fair to say, because, you know, again, this is the generation that has grown up with exchanging data, but Mm -hmm. their expectation is that if I give you my data, you must personalize and, you know, otherwise you've broken the social contract. And so, you know, again, what I see, and I've got, you know, several uh, people in my life who fall into this like 23 to 25 year old, you know, uh, demo, and they are, they're just, uh, they're just kind of starting out, right. You know, just getting their first apartments, that type of thing. And what I see with them, and again, I see this too in, you know, in the, in the data and the surveys that the industry does is Mm. that they know how to use loyalty programs. And so for them, they've grown up with them because Mm -hmm. now they're so ubiquitous, right? I mean, you know, when your dry cleaner and your yogurt shop have, have loyalty programs, you know, they're, they're everywhere. Right. And with all the POS systems out there, now they're all building in loyalty components. So it's very easy, you know what I mean? To scan your check, get points, et cetera. Yeah. So um, like if you're in a restaurant, but um, what I, what we see though, is that they are not as brand loyal mm-hmm. and uh, pandemic certainly threw that, you know, into a kerfuffle for many. And, um, but this demographic that these younger c- consumers, they are very, very interested in the value proposition of loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. And they're very well versed in it, especially, um, you know, like when they're getting immediate benefits. And so uh, part of the national news this morning, which I thought was incredibly interesting, was that um, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, and Chipotle have changed their programs. And these th- these programs are incredibly popular, you know, with, with people of this age group. And, um, and they're mad because, uh, yeah. you know, Starbucks, uh, all of them have, have switched their, uh, it, it costs more points, right. To get a reward Devalued. and, um, yeah. you know, and again, and it's, it's happening because it's, you know, there's an inflation is happening. The cost of food is up. The cost of labor is up. So everything has to, to change. Right. Um, but like what, what I think it's funny because what the, uh, the leap that they're not making is, well, you're spending more, you know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah. you know, it's it's happening on a commensurate basis, right? You're spending more and the points just got, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, harder to use, right? But um, yeah, but no, I think it is, uh, this generation was raised on them. And so mm. they understand how to use them for their own personal benefit. And so what's happening now, especially the ones, uh, again, this millennial group, right? They're so interesting because, you know, they're the ones who understand exactly how to get a free coffee out of Starbucks, a free sandwich, a free burrito out of Chipotle. Yeah. And um, they're using those as part of their daily lives. And so for them, right, again, for all of us who have built and run programs, it's a perk program. But what's happened is it's become so ingrained in their mentality that now it's become um, yeah. a, it's, yeah, I mean, now for them, it's, it's a, um, a hygiene factor, dare I totally. say it. Totally. Yes. But what I do think they do, Jen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think they they then share and tell each other. So I think the Mm -hmm. advocacy is huge. So it might be, yes, an expensive acquisition cost in terms of getting that first engagement. uh, But I guess there is, um, yeah, huge shareability. And I think that that's an important insight as well for, you know, again, as much as they do want to be different and, and, you know, not be like us as, you you know, or looking and feeling the same. But there is this um, likability factor where I guess we all want people that we know and love to to benefit from something that we have enjoyed. So so I do think it works really well. Um, and the devaluation, I think I'll nearly have to do a, a whole show just on that topic, Jen, because <laughs> it has happened here as yeah. well in Dubai with my, you know, most used program uh, with, you know, with Emirates Airline and Skywards. But in fairness to the team, um, certainly in the media, they have explained it well. They mm-hmm. have talked about the fact that the the points have been at the same redemption level for ten mm-hmm. years now. Um, so actually, it is important that um, that it does move in line with with overall pricing, and again, in favor of the frequent flyers who, yeah. like you, want to be able to avail, um, and they probably have billions of points anyway. So um, it's less of an issue uh, for people like that. So. Definitely a rapidly shifting market. Um, so much yeah. going on. 
And just before we finish on that topic, you've reminded me of one of my favorite blog articles that uh, Seth Godin wrote. And I don't know if you know him. He's a very famous marketeer, certainly inspired me to to become a podcaster, actually. But he Mm. talked about the next generation. And Mm -hmm. because we've come to the the end of the alphabet, which I know is the naming convention for demographics, (laughs) he did say that rather than going to Gen A for the next cohort, that it Mm -hmm. will probably probably, or he believes it should be Gen C. C for COVID, C for carbon, C for climate, C for community. And I thought that's genius. (laughs) So there is a lot going on and that we love talking about, of course, and and, and really want to stay connected to. So so thank you for your insights on the Zillennials. I'll make sure that we link to that article um, in our show notes for this episode. So let's talk about live shopping, Jen, because this is something that I've been fascinated by just for a couple of years now. Well, actually, probably before that, the whole home shopping thing, we didn't really have it in Ireland, but I know it was huge in the US and I was always like, I I loved watching it. I don't know why. Um, But it seems that um, lots of people, and I don't know, again, the demographics, but in terms of retail behavior, um, it seems that there's plenty of opportunity for, um, I suppose, hosted product demonstrations, which are broadcast on either social media or yeah. specifically within mobile applications, I'm guessing. Um, I think you mentioned one particularly that seemed to be taking off. But tell us a bit about what are you hearing about this live shopping trend? It sounds super sure. exciting. It is, uh, it, it's the it's the next evolution, right? And I think when it first came on the scene, and it certainly was happening before COVID, that uh, I think people were a little bit skeptical about it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden, when you can't go shopping anymore, right, and our lives turned a little bit more inward and went online, yeah. I mean, live stream shopping, oh my gosh, talk about like of the moment. And it's interesting because, um, so, you know, as we watch, uh, certainly we watch, you know, a lot of beauty brands, um, you know, we saw over the last, oh my gosh, uh, probably 10 years, right. That marketing kind of ratcheted down and community reviews, right. Started coming up because yeah, it was, course. you know, what you want to believe, right? you want to find someone who, you know, looks like you, same age, et cetera. And they're recommending products to you. They're writing reviews mm. and it, you know, it's this, it's this distrust, right. Of brands and especially, you know, marketing um, where they're like, nope, nope. You're just feeding me messages that you want to feed me. But when you read reviews right from the community, that, yeah. that gives you some sense of comfort, right? I mean, that's why, like, when you look at like, you know, eBay, right. You get these verified reviewers. So, you know, that the person actually bought the product, that they're not just being paid to shill. Yeah. And um, so I think live stream shopping was the next evolution of this because mm. um, you know, and again, for someone who, who's not, you know, well-versed in it. I mean, this is where brands are using this to promote and sell products through, you know, their digital platforms, right? So like, as you said, like hosted shows and that type of thing. And, you know, the aim of course, is to provide consumers with that immersive experience, immersive and interactive experience, because you Mm -hmm. can ask questions, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like if someone, you know, is talking about like, well, how does the jacket fit in your shoulders? You know what I mean? Or, you know, does, you know, does this cream make you feel dry? You know, all those type of things, you know what I mean? And, and that's where, you know, you're encouraged, of course, to buy, you know, during the live stream. But I think, you know, again, as, as we, we know, were denied social interaction yeah. and being able to, for instance, to go to a store, right. And try something on, um, this is the next best thing. Totally. And, and we had one amazing example, Jen, and I will get them back on the show. It was two years ago. And exactly to your point, it was a COVID um, requirement and it was in China. And actually it was the duty-free and uh, Lagardere, uh, pardon me, is the pronunciation of the company. But the, the actual airport remained open, even though flights were not flying. It was kind of bonkers. But again, they have all of these beautiful brands products. They have highly trained staff and they were standing around with nothing to do. And they started and and bizarrely, they had an Excel spreadsheet apparently was the loyalty program, (laughs) which is a little bit terrifying, but they started this live shopping. Now, I know China does everything in a very different way, but it really inspired me. And it certainly sounds like they were probably ahead of the US, it sounds like with this particular behavior. But for me, I, I actually think it's super enjoyable to shop in this way. 
And I've no doubt that there's loyalty programs, again, who are listening to this show, who will find that a very appealing idea. Um, you know, like connect and actually, you know, maybe there's points involved, of course, with the purchase. Um, and I did see a great example recently. It wasn't quite uh, live shopping, but it was uh, it was a different way of using loyalty through social media. And it was a, a 10 minute t- TikTok, which had Hilton honors points if you watched until the end. And I mean, it was just unbelievable. I talked about it on another show. I've been so taken with it. But Paris Hilton was in it. And just as a loyalty expert, I thought it was genius that I actually said, "Okay, I'll take your challenge. I'll spend 10 minutes. You know, it's going to be fun. And it was brilliant production, of course, as you can imagine. But this is the way I think uh, loyalty programs have to go. Like beyond, you know, as I said at the beginning, the subscription programs and the points programs and the basics, you know, it's, it's, it has to be more engaging. Otherwise, people won't stick with it anymore. But so for you getting uh, Hilton Honors points out of it, that is a tactic that we see, right? That's coming up through loyalty programs, which, yeah. you know, has been coined learn to earn. And it Love is, us. yeah, just yeah. just sitting through, you know, yeah. like a video, something like that. Um, you know, this is where, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, trends in loyalty program design, I mean, gamification is 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 finally having its moment right in a big totally. way yeah um, it has evolved beyond the you open up the app and it's the spin to win okay no it's not that anymore right <laughs> I mean, you see that but it's not that anymore right yeah. but it's really it's about engagement it's yeah. about experiential elements and yeah. it's about exclusives and i mean and the fact that you know now that we've definitely gone to a much more mobile forward world i mean that is the stuff that you know programs are getting are putting out there to get you to engage because totally. like i said I mean, earlier right i mean loyalty programs have become ubiquitous totally. and so what what is your stand for right mm-hmm. how are you going to be different and make your program sticky Absolutely. Yeah. And I like that term learn to earn as well, Jen, because we all know the the, the traditional transactional earn and burn. And I can only imagine the complexity. I'm sure your your team there in Incendio are probably, you know, busy doing business cases around how do you justify incentivizing behavior, which is not related to, to a transaction. But do you have any kind of comment around that? Is that something that brands are open to hearing about? Or are they a bit shocked when you suggest that you reward something that doesn't doesn't involve them, you know, the members spending money with you? No, uh, I mean, I'd like, like, for instance, NASCAR fan rewards, which we just launched uh, at the beginning of this month. It's a, it's an engagement program. Mm. And I mean, there's certainly there's transactional elements in it, for instance, Um, like we'd love to see you go to a race, but um, you are being rewarded in the exact same point value if you buy a grandstand ticket or a suite. And it's just more about, you know, um, engaging with the brand, just immersing, you know, in in that culture okay. and, you know, in, in finding more ways to engage with the sport as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, you know, again, we looked hard <laughs> for examples to benchmark, you know, when we were building the program and mm. we, we literally couldn't find any, you know, that was sure. just as pure of an engagement play as we, as we possibly could make it because, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, uh, part of the reason for NASCAR is that, you know, we built this program for the casual fan mm. and, you know, for the person who may not be able to attend a race either financially or geographically. Mm-hmm. And so it's meant to be a program that you can enjoy at home, you know, mm-hmm. watching races from home, but also, you know, things like playing uh NASCAR fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, answering quiz questions mm. uh, by, you know, just look, looking at what, you know, their foundation pages and what they do for their charitable works. And yeah. I mean, there's, there's there's a ton of ways to earn points that actually don't involve spending money. And, and again, that's very, very purposeful because we want you to, you know, engage and, and start to really love, you know, NASCAR as a sport. Absolutely. And there's one great example, Jen. We had them on the show. It's in South Africa, totally different sector. But again, with this genius insight around, you know, wanting to be actually of service, um, depending on what that looks like. But it's a bank in South Africa called Old Mutual, and they have financial education. And you do get loyalty points if you watch their videos and learn about their products. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to be a customer of the bank. It's it's quite extraordinary. And it's part 
part, partly a, a CSR initiative. And again, mm-hmm. it's just a wonderful way to say, look, if these people ever do decide that they're ready to take a bank account, they're going to yeah. take it with us because we've taken care of them. So right. I think that's absolutely wonderful. So definitely be excited to hear more about NASCAR Rewards as and when. Um, but listen, the final topic I wanted to ask you about in terms of these trends was I think what you described as a movement uh, for uh, the book industry and uh, book talk. So tell our listeners all around this uh, huge trend, which I had never heard of before. Yeah. So I got interested in book talk, um, which is, uh, again, you know, since we're, you know, you're listening to this, it's hashtag uh, book, B-O-O-K-T-O-K. And yeah. it is the book platform of TikTok. And uh, so we have a, uh, we work with Books A Million and Second and Charles, uh, which are booksellers here in the States. And uh, as we were getting engaged with them, you can't avoid book talk. And so I went to Barnes & Noble. I mm-hmm. went to Half Price Books. I mm-hmm. went to Books A Million. And every bookstore out there has a book talk section. And it is because um, it is, it's almost like, again, the younger generation has discovered hard, like actual physical books, right? Wow. <laughs> and uh, again, you know, part of what we're seeing a little bit is a backlash against screens, but that's a, that's a whole different topic. But, yeah. um, you know, certainly during pandemic, I had to laugh because, you know, one of the folks that I spoke with um, for the article that I wrote for Forbes was um, about, you know, what are you seeing with book talk? And they're like, okay, like, sales of books that have been around forever. Like there's a book called The Notebook, right? And it is, they've actually made a movie out of it. I mean, the book has been around for, I want to say 20 something years, okay. maybe even longer than that. Um, and the the younger generation, like for them, it's the process of discovery and The Notebook was recommended and it has become, you think like I can't keep it on shelves, right? And it's not a, it's not a recently published book, right? So yeah. Yeah, You know, you're getting it like secondhand, but you know, there's a lot of authors out there. Um, you know, one being a woman named Colleen Hoover and her, I think she owes her, uh, her career to book talk because she was a rather, rather prolific writer before, but, um, book talk has, I mean, if you go to any of the displays or any of the tables in any of the bookstores, mm. you know, I would say fully probably 30 to 50% of the books on the table are hers and they're her back catalog. And wow. so, but you know, the big piece of this is that it's all about discovery and, um, and with book talk, you know, people are making recommendations to each other and okay. this is where, again, no amount of marketing from Colleen Hoover's PR team is is gonna is gonna cause this spike, you Amazing. know, in the book chains across the country, you know. And I um, mean, she had a book come out, uh, at, you know, towards the tail end of pandemic that that just that hit like crazy. Wow. And it was like weirdness. I was uh, I was in New York City on the subway, and all I saw was this this certain book by her called Verity. And I was like, that's crazy. It was in my bag too. So I was just, and you know, I was like, this is crazy. But um, yeah, no. So the book talk, um, I think what it does. Is, it taps in against that thrill of discovery Amazing. and recommendations by your peer group. And so that, again, like what I you know talked about with beauty, right? Yeah. It is it's having someone who feels authentic to you and mm-hmm. who has a real voice making recommendations for things they might think you're like, not because they're getting paid for it, you yeah. know what I mean, or compensated. And I love the fact that actually it closes the loop with the real world um, mm-hmm. in a way that's, that's I, I suppose, more appealing than purely, you know, the beauty industry where it can be, you know, I suppose a little bit superficial, it feels sometimes. Yeah. But actually, you know, people getting excited about books is quite inspiring, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. I know there was one actually, uh, we, we talked off air actually a couple of weeks ago about uh, the Peppers and Rogers book, which also I think was very close to your heart. And would you believe mm-hmm. I've never read it, Jen? I felt so bad when I was uh, realizing that. So I'm going to go and order that. I know it's one of the original loyalty classics. Yes. So just as yeah. a final comment, do you want to mention mm-hmm. that book? Because I know it was really a, an important part of your journey in loyalty. Sure. So um, there there was a duo um, that was kind of at the forefront of our industry, uh, Don Peppers and Martha Rogers. And uh, they put out a book. Oh, my gosh. I got to say, it's got to be the mid-90s at least, right? And it uh, it was, it's called The One-to-One Future. 
And it was at the time incredibly revolutionary because they talked about, you know, being able to walk into your local coffee shop and your drink would be waiting for you, right? Because they know you. Mm. And um, one of the examples I thought it was kind of crazy was um, like going through a car wash, right? Where you put in like, you know, your phone number and they know exactly what you want for your car. You know what I mean? Whether it's, you know, the the triple coat, whatever, you know what I mean? Or, you know, like an extra pass with the dryer, whatever, right? But that, that you'd already know. No, right. And so it was all about using customer data to be mm. known, to be recognized and to personalize your experiences. And um, I read this as a, as a fledgling database marketer, right, you know, in the 90s. And I thought, this is what I want to do for my career because, you know, I mean, the sexy stuff, right, in the 80s was, I mean, working for an ad agency, you know what I mean, to have like a big account, like Coke or Budweiser, you know, whatever. And um, for me, it was definitely about the one-to-one. And so actually, I did have a chance... um, to meet um, Don Peppers. And I said to him, your book changed the course of my career. And I meant that, you know, very sincerely. And uh, apparently a lot of people have said that to him. And, um, but it just, it it really did. Because again, as I got into loyalty programs, you know, administration soon thereafter, right. Running, you know, the phone companies programs, Mm. it's true because I mean, that that's where, you know, that's what makes us responsive as, as humans and as consumers is when you feel like something's being recommended to you, you know, that is personalized. It is relevant to your situation and it feels like a good match. Right. And I mean, and that's, that's the magic, that's the magic of marketing, you know, where, uh, you know, some people would call that manipulative. I call that opportunistic and damn delightful in most instances. Well, I'm going with magic marketing, Jen. I think that's perfect. So listen, uh, with those fabulous words, um, I don't have any more questions, Jen. Are there any other, I suppose, big uh, insights that you feel are important to mention to our audience of loyalty marketing professionals around the world as we wrap up? Uh, uh, I actually, I read this on a billboard the other day and I thought it was incredibly relevant. And it says, um, you don't learn anything by talking. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so, you know, again, as uh, you know, some days I think, you know, you think, you know, the path, but um, as I always, you know, recommend to our clients, um, probably one of the best things that you can do is not only talk to the people in the field, right. Who represent your brand, but Mm -hmm. also talk to your customers, because I think the answers that we all seek are out there. And, uh, you know, if you know where to look, but, um, you know, again, as I, I always said to my team, you know, I said, get out, get out of the building, you know, because you're not learning anything sitting in your cube, you know, go out there and experience the world and see what customers are actually really doing. Fantastic. So listen, Jen, where can people find you if they want to reach out, they want to connect? Uh, where's the best place for them to contact you? Sure. Well, uh, so of course we have a website, right? We are a le- we are a legit business. So everybody has a website and um, ours is incendioworks.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, the word incendio means fire in Spanish. Um, but if you are a Harry Potter fan, you will also recognize that as the spell for making fire. And uh, so, yeah, so incendio works is our web address, but I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty easy to find um, under Jen McMillan. Fantastic. And we'll make sure, of course, to link to you as well in the show notes. So Jen McMillan, founder and chief accelerant at Incendio. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 500 executives in 38 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. 
Thanks again for supporting the show.